Hey, Forge family. Last week in episode number 11, together we looked at 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 to 17. The Apostle Peter was concluding his teaching on submission to God and, and submission to each other. And, he, and he's calling the whole of the church to begin to apply that, those submission teachings. He, he addressed a first free men and then slaves and then wives of unbelieving husbands and then, and then husbands who were believing uh, in Christ and in the church. And in each case, he talked about um, how Jesus was the example to follow. And so last week, in conclusion, he says, all right, people, here's how I want you to live this out. And uh, these are the apostolic conclusions uh, that he brings, and he's sending this in the circular letter that's going to go up that highway, if you will, from the Mediterranean Sea to the Black Sea. Um, and it's right up through the heart of Asia Minor, and all the churches are going to get these instructions. And he said, I want you all to be like-minded, to have the same sense of call and purpose. I want you to have fellow feeling for one another, to be able to weep with those that weep and rejoice with those that rejoice, to be loving to the brothers and sisters around you, to be tender-hearted. You, know, you can enter into the hurts and difficulties of your, of your lost Idolatry, idolatrous neighbors, those who are you know have death have death in the family, or grandma's desperately sick, or you know there's a baby that needs to be prayed for. That's the tender-hearted thing. He called them to be humble in spirit and be ready to serve, like Jesus served. And then he said, "Don't return evil for evil, don't return insult for insult." He he knew what was going on in those churches. He knew how hard it was to come out of an idolatrous, you know, system and begin to walk after Jesus, okay? Instead, he says, he turns and he says, okay, you be a blessing. You go after peace. And then Peter turns and he says, look, guys, the eyes of God are on you. So who are you going to be afraid of? If God's all over you, what, what do you have to fear? And then he gives some instructions, some orders for each one of them and each one of us to be ready to speak a defense to anyone who asks about the hope that we have in Christ Jesus. And then he gives some borders and some benchmarks. Here's how you do that. You do it with gentleness. You do it with respect. You know, this is not a put that man, put that woman in their place, you know, they're just lost and ignorant. No, that's not the way to go. This is to be gent done gently and respectfully. They could be on the way to an encounter with Jesus, just like you were earlier. And he says, do this with a good conscience. You know, be able to be able to stand before me and say, this is how I answered, and have the Lord say, well done, well done. Not, oops, let's rethink that. Okay. And then Peter ends with, you know, it's better to suffer for doing good if God so wills it. Because obviously your conscience is going to be free from guilt. And you will then keep entrusting yourself like Jesus did to the God who judges rightly. Now, Forge family and, and to those of you who are listening in to episode number 11, I gave you some homework. I strongly urged you 
along with the apostle Peter, to begin to practice your defense of your hope. To write out the three to four minute description of this is why I believe in Jesus. This is me personally. Not mom, not grandma, not someone I heard. It's not because I heard a message and I kind of went, oh, well, maybe, you know, and you wandered into salvation. That happens, but, you know, what you need in your defense of your hope is something direct and first person. I hope you did that. So you can get ready to be a witness, to have an answer to someone who asks. So let's pray. Forge family and, and those scattered abroad, Lord, we gather all of us to come to you and we say, thank you for this past week. Perhaps there were those who were ready to speak and ready to defend their hope, Lord. And now the, the message has gone out that there's someone here listening to this who had a chance to be a witness of the hope that's in Jesus. And now, Lord, I ask by Holy Spirit that you would quicken our spirits within to get us ready to grapple and to learn from this difficult passage before us today. Um, Lord, uh, Peter thought that this was really critical for those churches, and so we receive it as from Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So, family, let's read 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 to 20. So what it says, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh and made alive in the Spirit, in whom also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who also were disobedient, when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. So let's begin verse 18. Okay? Peter says, Christ died once for all. It's done. It's finished. That's what he said on the cross. To tell us that it's finished. Okay? In this case, he's addressing the problem of sins. Okay? It's, it's, it's all the sin for all time, for all, all humanity. And he, Jesus, bore the penalty, bore the judgment and the wrath of God in his body. And he was sinless. He was perfect. He was the just one in this passage. And it was poured out on him on the cross. And God's wrath and God's judgment was satisfied. So that the unjust could be made whole. Okay? Now that that business of Jesus died once and for all, that's never to be repeated. You know, there's no second sacrifice. Now, it continues in verse 18 that, that this death of Christ for our sins was in order to bring us to God. Now the word the word bring in Greek is it means to lead to. You know, you, you bring your daughter in from the garden. You you bring groceries into that, you know, excuse me. You, you, you bring people together. Okay, that's the point. Okay, now Jesus brings us into the presence and the favor of God Almighty. He, he, by his death and his resurrection, he restores access to God. 
in sense, it's entree. He opens a way where there could not have been a way. We couldn't do that for ourselves. He did it. And it says, he was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Eighty plus times in the New Testament, there are references to the resurrection of Christ from the dead. Now in the Old Testament, only God was able to rescue from death. He was described as the one who can kill and make alive. In the New Testament, only Christ is said to have descended into Hades. You know, there, there was no swoon here. There was no coma here. There was no, you know, oh, he was unconscious here. He was dead. You don't go to Hades and suddenly come awake and alive later. Okay, he was dead, dead. Okay, this was not a near-death experience. This was a death experience. And he was made alive again. Now let's talk about this word Hades. This is a Greek word that's translated, um, uh, that translates the Hebrew word Sheol in the Old Testament. In the Septuagint translation of the Old Testament, the Greek substitute word, if you will, that is descriptive of the same kind of place as Sheol is Hades. It's a holding place for the dead, both the righteous and the evil. Now, Hades is not hell. Hell is the English word that, that popped up, I think, 16th century and was used to translate this. Hell describes punishment, it, and it's always burning. Hell is like, is, is, hell and Gehenna is the, is, the, is the Greek word. Gehenna is the, is, was a place, a physical place in the Valley of Hinnom on the outside the walls of Jerusalem where the Jebusite Canaanite peoples had, had human sacrifice and where the wicked kings of Judah had had human sacrifice, and it was a place where it was constant burning of garbage and, and filth in this valley. There was always flame, there was always smoke, and so that's the physical description of hell and punishment. See, but that's not what is being talked about when Jesus descends into Hades, okay? So at verse 19, here, here Forge family, this is, this is one of the most difficult fought over, written about, argued about, discussed portions in the New Testament. It may be the it may be the the class example of how theologians disagree. Okay? Libraries are filled and written about the death of Jesus and the descent into Hades, and there's great disagreement between theologians. Now, God bless those who are called out to be the defenders of the Faith, once and for all, committed to the saints who write and think and speak and publish and proclaim truth with clarity. But too often in history, theologians uh, write and proclaim and argue and attack the opposition, someone who has a different viewpoint. And they may be absolutely convinced the other person is dead wrong. And frankly, they'd like to see them just dead. Okay? That has solved the problem. So here in this text, in, in actually in this one little word, in a uh, passage, you know, count the numbers. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14 words. Not all of them in the text of Scripture. Okay? The word now is inserted there. So in 13 words, 
These 13 words have produced a huge theological kerfuffle of what is it that Jesus actually did and to whom did he do it. So let's look at this very carefully and simply. Let's, let's, what does it say? What does this mean? How do we apply it? And that will provide the clarity that we need here. And we'll be able to, to slice through all this theological smoke. Okay? So, verse 19 refers back to verse 18 where it says, Jesus was being made alive in his spirit. Now, was that human spirit, lower lowercase s? Or does it mean he was being made alive in holy spirit, capital S? You know what? Greek manuscripts are that we have uh, 5,000 complete manuscripts of the New Testament. They're all in capital letters. There's no punctuation. There's no spacing between words. There's no chapter break and there's no verses listed down. It. You have to read it, separate the words, punctuate it, and decide, oh, this must be the end of the paragraph because he just the author just shifted here. See, that's what interpreters and translators do. Okay, but in, in fact, we don't know which spirit. So quickly, Forge family, it does matter a little, a very little. The point here is Jesus was made alive again out from amongst the dead. Let me say it again. Jesus was made alive again in his fully human spirit and his and his relationship with holy spirit was restored he's made alive again and then in verse 19 it says it starts in, it says in whom could be holy spirit or translated in which that could be the human spirit it depends on how you translate one word and they're both correct you just have to deal with the context okay jesus went it says, and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. The word now is not in the text. It's just added by, by translation committees to smooth the reading. Okay, text says Jesus went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison. Now, first question is, was he preaching to lost dead people? To lost souls? The answer is no. He was not. The text is clear that those who received that proclamation, if you will, were pneuma, spelled P-N-E-U-M-A. It's a Greek word, and it's descriptive of a spirit being. It's their spirits. Okay? And then the second question is, did Jesus proclaim the gospel, the, the euangelion, the, the message of salvation to those spirits? And the answer is no. Because the gospel of salvation by grace through faith means absolutely nothing to an eternal created spirit being. The holy angels of God are, are still worshiping in awe because of what God did to accomplish salvation for man. And the extent they, that God did, that God went to to sacrifice his own son, the creator of those angels. Okay? So there, there is no, there's no call to repent here to these angels. The word that's used here is not euangelion, 
Okay, the word in, in the text is caruso, K-E-R-U-S-S-O. And it's a word from the Greek marketplace. Okay, it's an official announcement of a representative of a government. I'm sure you've seen movies, you know, the Hollywood version of, of either medieval things or, you know, ancient stuff where somebody comes in with a trumpet and goes, da 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 and it gathers a crowd, and then the guy with the funny hat with a feather in it or whatever steps forward, and he reads the proclamation because he's, he's a representative, the prince or the king or the governor or whatever it is. That's the word. This is an official announcement by a representative of a government. Okay, so here, here in verse 19, the living made alive from the dead, Jesus comes to spirit beings in prison. Okay, the word for prison, it's a, it's a guarded, closed, locked, dark place. Now, the Apostle Peter seemed to think that this word about these, these uh, spirit beings that were held in prison was of such importance to the believers in Christ that he was writing to. He, he said it again in 2 Peter chapter 2. In fact, he goes out of his way to say, those evil spirits that were in violation of God's ways described in Genesis chapter 6 in the Noah account, those evil spirits were cast into Tartarus. Now, my translation says hell. That's not the word, though. It's a Greek word, Tartarus. And Tartarus is a Greek word of a place of great darkness beneath Hades, in which fallen angels, demons, if you will, they were kept. They're locked up. And the living Jesus comes to them to make a proclamation for the kingdom of God, of which he is the king. Okay? Now, we know he wasn't there to preach redemption because it doesn't apply to angels. Okay? His caruso, his proclamation was what? To fallen angels who had been disobedient to God's plans and God's ways. So in Genesis chapter 6, where he Peter dives in and he just, whoa, there we are. In the Noah account, Genesis 6. In Genesis 6, it says... The sons of God, which in the Old Testament is always referring to angels. They're all, it always refers to created spirit beings. The sons of God, okay? But the fallen portion of them, okay? The one-third of heaven that fell and went with Satan, okay? These fallen angels saw the beautiful daughters of mankind. And they took those daughters as wives. In doing so, they violated God's order of beings. You have a supernatural being producing offspring from a natural being. And the result was great wickedness on the earth. The text says every intent of the imagination in men's hearts was for only evil continually. It's one of those Hebrew passages that just, it's like there's you can't even say it loud enough. It was so wicked, so evil, and so continuous that it just it, it's supposed to rock off the page. Except for a man named Noah. 
and his wife and his three sons and his three daughter-in-laws. And God comes to Noah and says, you start building an ark for the salvation of your family. Noah goes, ark? You know, you've heard the Bill Cosby shtick. Okay, because it hadn't rained. And the idea of building a gigantic boat in a land where it had never rained was absurdity. But for the next 120 years, Noah and his family bore testimony of obedience to God in front of a corrupt, deviant world. So let's go back quick, okay? What was that proclamation to those fallen spirits held in prison since the day of Noah? Okay, remember, the, the, you know, there were, there's, a, there's a flood that comes and lifts Noah and the selected animals and his daughter-in-laws and his sons and his wife, and they float for a year nearly, okay? A year, okay? And the deviant, fallen humanity drowns. But the fallen angels don't drown because they're eternal beings. Okay, they're caught, they're captured, they're shut up. Okay, and along the way, the seed that Noah carried was protected. It's that seed that goes to flow through the line all the way through King David, you know, to Jesus. All right, so when Jesus comes as a living from the dead, fully human, fully divine person, and he comes to these fallen angels in Tartarus, held in prison since Noah's day. He has three things that I believe he said. Number one, sin's been paid for. Sin is no longer the issue. God's wrath has been satisfied. Number two, death has been conquered. And I stand here as one who has come from the dead. <clears throat> and the result of that is, number three, <clears throat> Satan, your master, who led you in rebellion, Satan has been defeated. The rest of that, verse 20 says, there are eight who survived the flood. They're protected by the ark. They're brought safely out through the waters. They're there to repopulate earth, to bless the earth, to worship God most high, and to carry and pass on the seed of the woman. Now read with me chapter 3, verses 21 and 22. It says, and <clears throat> corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ who is at the right hand of God having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers have been subjected to him. So let me start here in Philippians chapter 2. Paul says it a little differently. He arrives in the same place that Peter does. Okay, Philippians chapter 2 verse 9 says, Therefore, as a result of death, death on the cross, and resurrection... Okay, back to life. Therefore God highly exalted him, Jesus, and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those who are in heaven 
and on earth and under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's go back to Philippians, excuse me, to 1 Peter 3. Okay? Paul wants people to understand that God is seated at the right hand of God the Father. So does Peter. Okay? Jesus is, is risen, seated at the right hand of, of the Father. All right? And as such, as the ruling king, Peter turns and says, yeah, he's referring, in a sense, to a type of salvation that was accomplished in the fact that eight did not drown. Okay, they obeyed God, they worshipped God, and they were brought safely through the waters. So, too, we who call on the name of Jesus, the type of our salvation is baptism. Okay, it's plunged into the waters. Okay, you can do it with a sprinkle, you can do it, you know, you can do it with immersion. Um, that's not the point, okay? But this, this baptism has nothing to do with cleaning dirt off the body. It is instead a statement in the presence of God where you stand, Jesus gave you the entree, you come with him, he stands with you, and you say to the Father, I am with Jesus. Having done so, then you rise from your knees and you are embraced as a son and a daughter of the king. Now, Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father, it says in, in 1 Peter 3, 22, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers have been subjected to him. These are ranks and orders of his creation, Jesus, created these spirit beings to serve God, some of which rebelled and fell with Satan. Okay, All those who fell are now subjected to him, with perhaps the exception of Satan. <clears throat> he hates it. He hates it. But there's coming a day when he will acknowledge Jesus Christ is Lord. Does it mean that he'll worship and love and serve? See, he's subject to him. He's been made humble and broken because of the finished work of Christ. Okay? And those spirit beings that are in prison in Tartarus, they're held there until the final judgments that are described in the book of Revelation. So, Forge family, the proclamation of Jesus to us is that we are his. He paid our debt for sin. Jesus has made a way back to fellowship with God. Jesus has made a way into God's presence. Our appeal to God, if you will, via the waters of baptism is a way of saying, I am all in. I'm all yours, Lord. It's an outward sign of an inward reality. If you haven't stepped up in the presence of God and said, I want to be baptized, to say that to Jesus as Lord, I'm all in, I'm all yours, then please consider that. That's what Peter, 
That's what Peter's reminding these people of about their baptism. You said it. You did it, people. You're all in. And we get to bow the knees. I said before, we get to rise from our knees into his arms. We're the sons and daughters of the king. All right, Forge family. I love you. We'll see you soon. God bless you.